the moment. The moment was not the one that you would have guessed. I mean, American GIs had just marched through the 18-foot-high gate leading to the Czech concentration camp. Or, more accurately, I should say, they had just smashed through the gate with a Sherman tank. Concertiner wire was still hanging from the end of the turret. It looked for all the world like strands of Christmas tinsel. But that was not the moment. That was not the moment even though she had lived behind gates like that one since she was 16 years old. And in just a day or two, she would turn 21. But that was not the moment. The moment came when a young army officer approached her and asked, are there any others? Silently, she nodded in assent, and she led him towards the barrack where she spent her nights. As they grew near to the opening of the barrack, she knowing full well that it was filled with girls and with women who were so malnourished, so weak, so ill, they could no longer stand on their feet. As they neared the opening, the lieutenant deftly stepped in front of her so he could open the door for her. That was the moment. She said that was the moment when someone graciously opened the door for me that I re-entered humanity. That was the moment. This is a story of Gerda Weissman. I only know the story because Debbie Hepburn told me the beginnings of it. And then she directed me to the United States Holocaust Museum's archives so I could hear a senior, Goethe Wiseman, tell her own story. I can tell you that it is at the same time horrifying, mesmerizing, and hopeful. I obviously can't tell you much of her story tonight. But did you know uh, that when these women and girls were rounded up, incarcerated, and tortured for the totality of World War II, they were made to work a full shift in, let's say, a steamy armaments factory during the day. At night, they were made to work another full shift in a freezing meatpacking factory. And as the Allies began to close in on Germany, seeing that they had not killed them yet through exhaustion, the Nazis marched them along the, the entire span of Germany. And when they reached the Czech border, they had started off with 430. When they reached the Czech border, 125 were still alive. When Goethe entered those 18-foot-high gates, her best friend Hilda, from infancy, from infancy, died in Goethe's arms. And prophetically, I think, Hilda looked up at her dear friend Goethe, and these were her final words. I beg you to live just one more week.
I beg you to live just one more week. And on the seventh day of the ensuing week, American GIs crashed through the gates. And Goethe had her moment. She had her moment when she re-entered humanity. Speaking of moments, Michael Gerson, the celebrated columnist for the Washington Post, and the unapologetic Christian, by the way, a graduate of Wheaton College, Michael Gerson says that the most important moment in the entire Bible is likely when Mary responds to the angel and she says, let it be unto me according to your word. Let it be to me, let it be to me that I should carry the Christ child. Let it be to me that I will be ridiculed and hounded out of my own town. Let it be to me that I will risk my marriage to Joseph. Let it be to me according to your word. And at that moment, at that singular moment, the door was opened for God to walk through the door to humanity at that moment. And I want to attest to you this night, brothers and sisters, and those that I hope will become my brothers and sisters, that Christmas is not an isolated moment in the biblical story, nor is it an isolated moment in yours and my story. No, the, 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 that moment is irrevocably connected to another moment. And we live between the two. The first moment, as Gerson has rightfully pointed out, is the incarnation. God, through Christ, becomes a human being. He enters into the heinous mess we have made of our world, of our relationships, and of ourselves. He steps in the middle of that, and he saves us from our sins. Right? That's how the story goes. I don't know where some of you go to church, but that's how the story goes here. <laughs> the second moment, the second moment is the ascension. When Christ, when Christ takes our nature to God and our humanity is restored and we are no longer relegated to a truncated half-life. No longer are we relegated to that. We live between those two moments, you and I. And living between those two moments, we learn to trust. We learn to trust God. We begin to understand that God is incredibly trustworthy, that he will come to you and me and he will save us. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That is a weak amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. It's the greatest truth in the world. So he's, he's faithful. And you know, St. Paul never waned in his enthusiasm and for his wonder that the God of the universe would become a human being and then he would allow himself to be sacrificed for people who hated him. <laughs> Jesus Christ is sacrificed on the cross for people who hate him, including you and me at times. And so in response to that, Paul, late in his life, and is probably a second to his last uh, bit of writing, he makes this very curious statement. It's in the latter part of the 11th chapter of Romans. 
God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. I see some of my members of my Romans class nodding their heads. Thank you, Jess Mayfield. You know, God has consigned all to disobedience so he might show mercy to all. You say, well, that's not just a curious statement, Pat. That sounds like an unreasonable and a totally unchristmassy statement. But it's not. Here on this most, most holy night of the Christian year, probably uh, second only to the night before Easter, on this night, I bet you that there are those in this room, including the big mouth who's talking, that has grown weary of our cleverness. That we've come to the end of the charades we've been playing, and we're tired of all the false starts and the bad endings. When that occurs, Christ walks through the door to our life. When we get sick and tired of all that, Christ walks through the door to us. You know, I love the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of St. John, because it reminds me so much of the world in which we live. The people to whom John is writing are disconsolate. The culture looks like it's going to absorb the church. Rome looks like it wants to erase the church. And Jesus, in the third chapter, the 20th verse, says this. Behold, I am standing at your door and I am knocking. I am standing at your door and I am knocking. Why? Because he's ready to walk in your life, into my life, and rearrange all the furniture there, and our moment will come. But that's just the first moment. The second moment is connected by the same door, you see? The second moment is connected by the same door. Once we begin to bathe in the grace of God, once we begin to just even just get a taste of the grace of God, just a nibble, we no longer, we no longer want to, to tread those dead avenues that we've been walking on. We don't want any part of that life any longer. We're sick of our unforgiveness. We're sick of our, of our lack of faith. We're sick of our lack of mercy. We're sick of, the, sick of the fact that we're not generous. And the Lord begins to do a good work in us. St. Paul knew this too. In just a couple of lines from the last strange one I just quoted to you, he gives one of the most lyrical lines in all of the New Testament. It's in the first part of chapter 12. I beseech you, I beseech you, I beseech you by the mercies of God. Make of your lives a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may, so that you may do what is good and acceptable and perfect and complete the Word of God. Wow! Woo! Lord have mercy! But you see, it's very much, if you can envision this, think of that lieutenant opening the door open for Gerda. It's true that he opens the door so she can be free. But he also opens the door so that she can live a full life. That's the way it works with us. When Jesus opens the door for us, it's not just that we're saved from our sins. That's just part of the story. The other part is... We can live a completely transformed life. 
We're not relegated to that old life any longer. Now, if you talk about a Christmas present, that's the one I want. Unwrap that one tomorrow morning. That's the one. And let me tell you something else that happens to us when, when, when this occurs. We begin to realize that God is not just kind of doling out his grace in little bits. Oh, you've been a good boy. I'm going to give you a little bit. Oh, you, ma'am, you've been good. I'm going to give you a little bit of grace. That's not the way it works at all. We begin to realize we're swimming in an ocean of grace. That grace is the fuel of the universe. And so that when we are generous and merciful and forgiving and altogether loving, we become part of the glue of the universe. Anything else is an aberration. It's just aberrant behavior. We swim in an ocean of grace. This hit me in a particularly oh, vulnerable place two weeks ago. For 20 years, for 20, for, the, for 20 years on the second Saturday of Advent, this parish church, many of you, uh, host a luncheon for the poorest people in San Antonio. They come from all over, but mainly from a three-mile circumference of this church. <clears throat> and they come to have a fried chicken dinner. No, nobody in a good church can say no to a fried chicken dinner. They come for a fried chicken dinner. They, they come for an array of desserts that you make in your kitchens. They come so they can sit on Santa's lap. They come so they can receive a Bible for the children. They come so their children can go to Santa's workshop and pick out a toy that they've always wanted. Kay and I came to just see how things were going. And we walk in the door, there's 250, 250 people there rejoicing that someone cares. 250. Children running all over the place, people talking, people being loved on. And in the bunch of 250, I saw a, a senior, one of our girls, who's a senior in college. In fact, she's got about a 3.9 at this point. She's brilliant. And I've known her since she was in eighth grade, so it was great to see her. And she was all afire, pure lights, you know, when someone's just filled with the Spirit and so happy. And I said, oh my goodness, why are you here? She said, well, my grandmother called me. I understand that. Uh, my grandmother's still calling, and she's upstairs. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and I said, oh, well, what I didn't know was this part of the story. That young lady pays her way to go to college by managing a retail store. Every day of the week. And on that particular night, she needed to restock the shelves with her team. What her grandmother could not know is that when the grandmother said, please meet me at 8.30 to set up Santa's workshop, the young woman was working till 2.30 in the morning. 2.30, she finally closed the lock on that retail store up, up uh, north of North Star Mall. But at 8.30, she was right there with her grandmama. Why? Because sleep deprivation, exhaustion, none of those things can compare to the grace in which we swim. That little girl had grown up with her grandmother and with her mother and her father in this place, and she knew the gift of grace in which we swim, in which we bathe, is worth more than anything. Nothing compares. 
And she knew that if she gave in to the love of Christ, she would live in Christmas all the time. And so she was up at 8.30 and she was radiant. Her moment had come. And her grandmother, by the way, was all smiles. And what about that lieutenant who opened the door for Gerda Weissman? His name was Lieutenant Kurt Klein, I learned from the archives. Lieutenant Kurt Klein. His mama and daddy had made tremendous sacrifices so that in the mid-1930s, he could come to the United States. Their sacrifice was the greatest because they could not come, and both were executed at Auschwitz. But Kirk Klein, overcome with gratitude for, his, for, the, for the country that adopted him, joined the U.S. Army, and he was in the liberating force that opened that concentration camp in Volais, Czechoslovakia. He says that when he saw Goethe, number one, her hair was completely white from malnutrition. Completely white-headed. She's not quite 21 years old. She was only covering her body with rags that were filled with lice. She smelled like a sewer. And she weighed 68 pounds. And Lieutenant Kurt Klein said, the moment I cast my eyes on her, I loved her. And in 1946, they married. And they walked through the door to enchantment. 